there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. How long you say she's been missing? Since yesterday. Still gets real cold at night. Snow on the ground in some places. If she is out there... Sure hope she found cover. Would you look at that? Never seen hawks hunting packs before. Those ain't hawks. They're buzzards. They found themselves a kill. That looks like the old logging road. Come on. This the old logging highway? Yeah. No public access anymore. These here logging roads are great places to stalk deer. Elk sometimes. Hunters are putting some good miles on them still, don't you worry. Maybe we should hold up until we get a search party out here. Weren't too many buzzards. Only three or four. It could be a deer some youngin shot, but didn't kill and left there because he was afraid to finish the job. Hell of a thing when you miss. Then you have to look the deer in the eye while you kill it. A lot of young boys think they're ready for that, but aren't. There's just something about a small town. Up here, Sheriff. We got an object on the ground. Fifty, maybe a hundred yards up. Everybody knows their neighbor. No one locks their doors. No surprises. No threats. Hang on. Help me move this brush. At least that's what everyone thinks. Oh, no. Oh, God. Until it's too late. Step away. Don't damage the <gasps> crime scene. Hi, I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on Cindy Joy Elias. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Today, we're opening our investigation into the murder of Cindy Joy Elias, a 19-year-old college student from northern Minnesota who turned up dead one cold spring night after drinks with classmates at a neighborhood bar. Forty years later... Nobody knows why. Was this a crime of opportunity? Was Cindy simply a pretty young woman in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was she killed by someone she knew? Someone maybe she didn't realize was watching her, or someone who saw the opportunity in that remote northern Minnesota location to take advantage of a young woman alone. Four decades later, a now-defunct cold case unit and the St. Louis County Police Department still don't have any answers. This is the story of Cindy Joy Elias. 
Virginia, Minnesota, 1977. A quiet college town in the middle of nowhere, nestled in the snowdrifts of northern Minnesota. The quiet, industrious shoulder of the state that rubs right up against Canada. One of many small working class towns trailing through the Masabi Iron Range, like breadcrumbs in the woods. Life on the Masabi Iron Range was simple, taxing, and decidedly unglamorous. The Masabi Iron Range was one of the largest concentrations of iron ore in the country, a resource so valuable it dominated the local economy. Between open pit ore mining, hauling, processing, crushing, grinding, and pelletizing, there was a job for everyone in the Iron Range until the late 1960s, early 1970s. Mining on the Masabi Iron Range had changed dramatically over the course of that decade, taking a bite out of the local economy as it did so. A job in mining did not promise families on the Masabi Range the financial security that it used to. Mining operations on the range switched from underground to open pit mining, which required a different processing procedure. In decades gone by, loggers came and went as they hauled iron ore out of the area across the country along the rest of its processing journey. Now, these roads were defunct, a paradise for the woodland deer and the locals who loved to hunt them. What was life like for someone from a town like this, one might wonder? Well, for Cindy Joy Elias, it was transient as well and cut way too short. Save for a younger half-brother, Cindy Joy Elias was the youngest of six siblings born to Edward and Audrey Elaine Elias on December 17, 1957. The Elias children had a wholesome Midwestern childhood, complete with summers spent on their uncle's dairy farm in Wisconsin, where Cindy began to foster what would become a lifelong love of animals. Things changed when Cindy's parents split and her mom, Audrey, a rambling rose at heart, moved the kids to Paramount, California, while Cindy was still in grade school. Divorce rates surged in the mid to late 1970s, and even though Cindy and her sister Joyce were far from the only kids they knew who came from a broken home, so to speak, they felt the strain of living in a single-parent household. Their mom, Audrey, did her best to support the children as a single mom in the late 70s, when women weren't exactly empowered to assert themselves with confidence in the workplace. Audrey strung an eccentric list of jobs together, and the family moved around a bit before settling in Paramount. Right next to Downey, on the southernmost tip of L.A. County, Paramount was a wholesome suburb undergoing a socioeconomic shift all of its own, thanks to suburban sprawl. The Elias siblings came and went from California, but ultimately Cindy and her sister Joyce wound up staying and spending the remainder of their childhoods in Paramount with Audrey. <coughs> Cindy, you gonna pass that or what? Have some manners. <coughs> Cindy didn't exactly get the typical Minnesota Iron Range experience as a pretty blonde high school girl in Southern California. Beach was awesome today. Totally awesome. Hey, save some of that for the ride home. Gotta have something to barter when we hitchhike. <laughs> Like, anybody who picks up two kids on a surfboard in Venice Beach won't already have herb on them. But soon, Cindy discovered California Dreamin' wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Firestone! Firestone Boulevard stop! Yes, this is my stop! Thank you! 
part of me coming through. Part of me, guitar case coming through. There you go, miss. Thank you. Good night. Hey! Hey! You with the guitar case! I'm talking to you! Hey, baby! I want to play all your strings tonight. Come here! Oh, n no! Go away! Help! Help! Police! Cindy and Joyce, who is just two years older, moved back to their sleepy, snowy hometown of Britt, Minnesota, after graduating high school in 1976 because, ironically enough, Cindy and her sister were starting to get scared walking through the streets of Paramount at night. Young Cindy grew up watching her mother working multiple jobs to support herself and her kids. Which undoubtedly inspired Cindy to set high professional aspirations of her own. Anyone who knew Cindy said that she was a sweet girl with a big heart. So when she and Joyce moved back in with their father and Cindy expressed an interest in going to school to become a social worker, nobody expressed much surprise. While Cindy was out west, the part of northern Minnesota she was born in went from an obscure, unglamorous part of the country to a pin in the map of rock and roll history, thanks to its most famous resident, Bob Dylan. Born in Duluth and raised in nearby Hibbing, Dylan's music touched on his upbringing on the Mesabi Iron Range frequently, particularly his song, Girl from the North Country. Perhaps his success story gave other kids in the Mesabi Range hope that their talent and passion could lead them to something better too. College on the Mesabi Iron Range in northern Minnesota, a part of the country notorious for its geographic isolation, was far from the hustle and bustle of Southern California, but Cindy didn't mind. Ironically, she felt safe now that she was back home in a small town. Cindy's sister Judy described Cindy to the local paper as full of life, liked to have fun, and was fun to be around. Her siblings all fondly remember her musical gifts and how she could play guitar by ear. She picked up the skill while living in Paramount and brought it back with her to the Masabi Iron Range. So a pretty girl who could strum out some Dylan melodies on command was surely the life of every party in Virginia. Evening, young lady. Oh, Bruce, hey, I didn't know anyone would be here. Dad asked me to check on you while he was at work. Young girl alone in the house. I'm fine, Bruce, I can take care of myself. Where have you been? Nowhere special, just a party with some friends from school. I brought my guitar and just Lost track of time. How did you get home? I found a ride. Relax. Everything's fine. Cindy, you have to be careful. It's not good for a young woman to be finding her way home from Virginia alone so late. Oh, come on. It's not like I'm back in Paramount. It's so much safer here. These are small towns that Bob Dylan songs are made of. Virginia and Britt, Minnesota might be small towns, but it's a sick world out there. Yeah, out there. Not here. That's why I moved back. Cindy was born in nearby Britt, and so she recognized some of the locals when she enrolled at Masabi Range Technical College to get her associate's degree in social work. Nevertheless, they were familiar faces from her childhood. How easy is it, really, to jump right back into the swing of things with your friends from first or second grade after a decade has passed? As a new kid in her own hometown, 
Cindy was faced with the social obstacle of making a good first impression during her first year of college while also establishing herself as a different person than her old elementary school classmates might have remembered. Hey, how's it going? I thought that was you, Cindy Elias. California blonde and all. Yep, that's me. What class are you coming from? English. What a snooze. But we've all got to pass it to graduate. You going to this party Thursday night? I saw that boy you like handing out flyers for it. You mean that boy you like? I wouldn't take anything out of his hand that I couldn't test for disease first. All right, you got me. That boy I like. And come on, it's just a party. You know, like normal college students have? Well, you can all have fun being normal college students, but I'll be working a shift at the Motor Lodge. Mines are closed now, Cindy. Life's not a party anymore. Not like it ever really was here. Well, I gotta get to class. You coming? I'm done for the day. See you around, I guess. 19-year-old Cindy was caught between two worlds, no matter how you slice it. Teetering on the cusp of childhood and adulthood, between obedience and independence, with a moral code inevitably colored by California, but hand-knit by earnest Minnesota values. Unfortunately for Cindy, she never got the opportunity to figure out which world she wanted to be in full-time. Her murderer took that from her. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. How did a hard-working, savvy young college student go from a normal gathering with classmates to a shallow grave in the woods? At the time of her murder, Cindy was enrolled in the Masabi Range Technical College on her way to becoming a social worker. Cindy loved children and animals and wanted to help people. Oh, what a sweet kitty. He looks cold. I hope they feed him well. Look at the size of that barn he's waddling into now. He eats mice. That's the point of a barn cat. I wish I'd found time to volunteer at our local animal shelter back in Paramount. Well, with all the volunteering you are already doing at the youth center and the library and classes at the high school, if you found time to help with all of the stray cats of Southern California as well, when exactly would you have time to sleep? (laughs) I guess there are only 24 hours in a day. (laughs) Cindy's desire to go into social work could have been influenced by the socioeconomic disparities she saw living near a big city like Los Angeles. Like most of the folks living on the Masabi Iron Range, Cindy's family was working class. She did not necessarily enroll in Masabi because it was her first choice college. She did it because it was the most affordable. Masabi only offered an associate's degree in social work, not a bachelor's. So Cindy knew she'd have quite a lot of saving up to do in order to achieve her dreams. Cindy hoped to parlay an excellent academic performance at Masabi into acceptance at a bigger university in a city nearby, maybe St. Paul, where she could both finish her degree and get her career in social work off the ground. But with five of his other children living nearby and a rapidly growing crop of grandkids, Edward Elias couldn't help his daughter as much as he wanted to. So, Cindy picked up a waitressing job at the restaurant in the Coats Inn, a motor hotel in town. After watching her mother wait tables back in Paramount, Cindy already knew the basics of customer service and quickly became one of the restaurant's most valued employees. Refill on your coffee, sir? Yeah, thanks, hon. Hey, weren't you here Wednesday at dinner? Yep, that's me. 
Well, you don't remember me? Wait, were you the fish and chips with applesauce? Yes, ma'am. I have to say, nobody's ever ordered that side with their fish and chips before. I was hoping you'd be here again today. You didn't come back just to see me, did you? Can't tell you either way. What are up? That my roast beef sandwich? For table 19? That's the one. Cindy, is this guy bothering you? Who, the trucker? No, it's all right. You've got a lot of regulars for someone who's still pretty new. Well, my mom was a waitress back home. Well, back in Paramount. Joyce and I would pick up her shifts sometimes when she, when she was too sick to work. So I've already had a lot of practice. Yeah, but you're still just a kid. Any of these guys bother you, you let me know, you hear? Thanks, I appreciate it. Hey, where's my sandwich? Hold your horses, we're coming! Cindy wasn't afraid of a little hard work, especially if it got her closer to her dream. After all, she did have the patience and self-discipline to teach herself guitar by ear. Cindy dutifully logged in hours at the coffee shop. Being that it was basically attached to a roadside motel, they could get some rough and tumble clientele here and there for sure. But that didn't shake Cindy's resolve. According to her family, she was thrilled to start bringing home paychecks and saving her own money. At 19, she was charging towards gaining her independence full speed ahead. Besides, Cindy's family knew she'd have to put herself through school somewhere else to get the degree that she wanted. And as much as they wanted to, they couldn't afford to help. The Masabi Iron Range was experiencing the beginnings of its economic decline as mining needs shifted and technology advanced. So Cindy's dad figured the least he could do was to be supportive of whatever his daughter needed to do to be able to live the life that she dreamed of. All things considered, Cindy Elias was finally living a normal college life, settled into a routine of work, school, and socializing when she had time or energy left over. She finally felt at 19 that her life was on a stable trajectory. Suddenly, everything changed. In late March 1977, days before Cindy disappeared, Edward Elias got into a serious accident. With her father away at the hospital and her siblings spending most of their time off work at his bedside, Cindy had more autonomy than ever. Cindy had just started bringing in her own income, and between her schoolwork and her social life, she was building an independent life for herself. She dreamed someday of moving to a city like St. Paul, to finish her social work training and then staying there. The glamours of a city life right there at her fingertips. At Masabi Range College, her Southern California look and breezy West Coast energy made her stand out to her classmates, especially the boys. Cindy? Cindy, wait up. Well, look who it is. Where's the guitar? It's at home. No room in Judy's car for it today. Ah, shame. I thought we could pluck out some new Dylan songs together. Maybe another day. If Judy ever gets tired of giving you a ride into town, I'll come pick you up. Oh, yeah? There's a party next week, Thursday after our poli-sci midterm. Come by. Bring your guitar. You never know. We might make some beautiful music together. Careful using lines like that. You'll get a cavity. All sugar, no substance. Hmm. So you'll come by to the party? I'll see if I'm free. Even though she had work the very next day, when she was supposed to pick up her paycheck and get her guitar restrung, Cindy agreed to go to the party her classmates were throwing after their midterm on Thursday, 
March 23, 1977. There was just one problem. Her sister Judy, also taking classes at Masabi, had off that day and hadn't planned on going into town. And with her father Edward still in critical condition, Cindy felt guilty asking her siblings to give up the hour and change to drive her into Virginia just to go to a party. So Cindy needed to find her own ride into town. She ended up getting a ride with a friend from the neighborhood. After class, she headed out to meet her classmates at the El Dorado Bar. Hey, you came out after all. See, it's not so bad. Not so bad? My shoes are already sticking to the floor in this place and I haven't even been here an hour. I'm heading out. But we just got here. Yeah, and this is just not my scene. You want to ride home, Cindy? (laughs) If you're staying because you're waiting for that boy to pay attention to you, looks like you're in for a long night. So, want to ride back to Brit? I didn't lug my guitar all the way out here to not play it today. You run ahead. I'll find a ride home with a friend. You sure? These folks all look like they're in no condition to drive. I'll be fine. You go. See you in economics next week? Sure thing. But Cindy wouldn't make it to economics the next week. Or back to any of her classes ever again. The last time anyone saw her alive was that night in the bar, March 23, 1977. Cindy lost track of time after a couple of hours of being an impromptu jukebox for her classmates. Cindy's friends left the bar one by one, leaving only her acquaintances behind. These kids showed no sign of stopping or slowing down and were in no condition to drive. So asking one of them for a ride back to Brit was pointless. And Cindy didn't want to call her older siblings, knowing that they were minding kids of their own at this point and had their hands more than full with her father. But she didn't want to stay at the bar all night. Not to mention she couldn't afford too much longer. She still hadn't picked up her first paycheck from her new job. So what do you do when you're out of money, done drinking, don't have a ride home, and don't feel comfortable asking for a favor? Well, in a small town in 1977, you might give hitchhiking a try. Excuse me, is it okay for me to leave my guitar in the stockroom overnight? Your name and address on it? Yes, sir. I'll be back for it tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock sharp. I'm getting it restrung just up the street after I pick up my first paycheck. Well, I'll watch it like it's my own. Need me to call you a cab? I'm all right. Well, good, because the last cab company closed down not long after the mines did. You got a ride? I'll find one. Yeah, someone in here will get you home. Just gotta wait long enough for them to sober up. I'm my own woman. I don't wait on anyone. I'll just hitch a ride out front. Couldn't be too hard. Hitchhiking? You're some kind of hippie? I guess. <laughs> uh, you'll be careful out there. I'll be fine. It's Virginia, Minnesota for Pete's sake. Not like I'm back in LA. And with that, Cindy walked out of the bar. Never to be seen again. To this day, nobody knows exactly what transpired between Cindy leaving the El Dorado bar on March 23, 1977, and her body turning up in the woods nearly 24 hours later. And nobody at the bar said they heard any sort of commotion from outside. Hitchhiking had lost its luster by that time, as reports had started turning up all over the country about people who hitched a ride only to turn up dead or never to be seen again. And with limited funds in her pocket and no paycheck yet, it's hard to believe Cindy acted out of character by getting in a car with a stranger just because she had too much to drink. So what happened? 
Did Cindy let her guard down and hitch a ride with the wrong guy? Did someone see her alone in the parking lot and grab her before she even had the opportunity to hitchhike at all? Or did she get into the car that eventually drove her to her death because the driver was someone she knew? Who picked up Cindy Joy Elias from the El Dorado bar that day in Virginia? And why did they kill her? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue the story. With her older siblings busy and her father still hospitalized, it took the Eliases a few hours to register concern. Cindy lived with her dad, Edward, who was still recovering from a serious accident on his own at the time, and had no way of knowing she hadn't come home. Cindy's older siblings had families of their own to tend to by this point, and since Edward wasn't home to notice Cindy never returned to her bed that night, nobody really noticed she was gone right away. They figured she probably just stayed in Virginia with a classmate. But when Cindy's boss at the restaurant called the next morning on March 24, 1977, Joyce knew for sure there was cause for concern. Elias Residence. Cindy? No, this is Joyce, her sister. Can I take a message? Well, hey, this is uh, Cindy's boss over at the Coates Motor Inn. Cindy's late to pick up her check, and I wanted to make sure she was coming in to get it and work the dinner shifts that she's scheduled for. Oh, that's really not like her. When did she say she'd come by? Over an hour ago. Something's not right. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Look, if she comes home, let me know. Cindy's still new here, but I'm worried about her. I'll call if she shows up here. Yes, of course. Thank you. Cindy had been talking excitedly about picking up her first paycheck from the restaurant almost since the day she'd gotten the job. Joyce and Judy were so worried after hearing from Cindy's boss that they were able to persuade the cops to get a jump start on looking for Cindy. Can I help you, ladies? Sheriff, I'd like to file a missing persons report for my sister, Cindy Joy Elias. When was she last seen and where? Around 10.30 a.m. yesterday, here at home in Britt. She was supposed to go to a party after her class last night at some bar in Virginia. What time did she come home? I, I'm not sure that she did. Cindy and I live with our dad. Nobody else lives at home. Aren't you two the girls who moved back from Hollywood? Far from Hollywood, sir. But we went to high school in California, yes. How can you be sure she didn't just run away? Make her way back to some boyfriend she had to leave behind. My sister's not like that. Sheriff, she wouldn't run away. College kids these days, getting all kinds of ideas. Want to go Jack Kerouacking around the whole darn country. She never showed up at work to pick up her first paycheck. What kind of 19-year-old would run away from home without getting cash first? All right, all right. When did you last see her? Around 10.30, she got a ride into Masabi College, about 30 to 40 minutes away in Virginia. Had to turn in a paper on sociology, I think it was. Stayed in town to go to a party after that. The sheriff's office confirmed that Cindy had shown up to class that day, and several classmates placed her at a party in the El Dorado bar later that evening. Yeah, Cindy, she was there. (laughs) Groovy girl, brought her guitar. Never got to play a duet with her. Cindy had a few drinks, but they wanted to get home. She takes more classes than the rest of us on account of her major, and still had more homework to do. 
Cindy was still there when I left. I needed to get back to Brit. I had to get up early in the morning to help my mother with chores. But Cindy didn't want to leave the party early. She asked me for a ride, but I wasn't ready to leave yet. I feel bad. She asked me for a ride, but I was going in the opposite direction. She asked me for a ride, but I'd already planned to stay at my boyfriend's that night right in town, where my car was already parked. I wish I'd just said yes. I wish I'd just said yes. I wish I'd just said yes. I wish I'd just driven her home. The Elias siblings discuss the problem of what to tell Edward. Still in critical condition, they worried about what effect the news of Cindy's disappearance would have on his health. They decided to keep Edward in the dark until they absolutely had to tell him something. That didn't last long. While sheriffs turned the tiny town of Virginia, Minnesota upside down looking for Cindy, Joyce and Judy waited by the phone, holding out hope. Their hope dimmed when investigators started calling and asking questions about Cindy. Did she date? Did she have a boyfriend back in Paramount? Was she talking to anyone her siblings didn't know about? When the sheriff's department called back and asked Joyce about any identifying marks or scars Cindy had, that's when Joyce knew. Oh, Sheriff, have you heard anything? Has she turned up? Evening. Sorry to give you false hope, but I forgot to ask you something earlier. Cindy have any marks or scars that would make her body distinguishable? Why? Sheriff, why are you asking me that? We found a body. On an old logging road off Highway 135, near the Northern Mine entrance. <laughs> oh no. No. We want to be sure we can't, uh, couldn't get a good enough look at the face. Oh, God. You gotta stay with me. Any scars or identifying marks? Um, Cindy has a scar on her big toe, shaped like a crescent from when I dropped a can of paint on her foot as a kid. I'm so sorry, Joyce, but there's a crescent-shaped scar on the left big toe. Next week, we'll continue our investigation into Cindy's sudden and violent death. How did she get from that sleepy Virginia bar to her shallow, woodsy grave? And why? Was she simply in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was she a naive victim of a town whose crime wave was rising as its infrastructure was falling? Or was she killed by someone she knew? Hey, boy oh boy, am I glad to see you. Thanks for the ride. Did the Masabi Iron Range have a killer in their midst, hiding in plain sight? Next, we'll explore possible suspects and efforts taken by Minnesota law enforcement in the decades since Cindy's death to find out what really happened to her. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into the murder of Cindy Joy Elias. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. If we live till next time. 
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Lorelai Ignis and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Amber Connor, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Sarah Miller-Cruz, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez.